Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 22. I think I've lost count of the times where Diane has sung, and I we should just end it there. This is about as good as it gets sometimes. Matthew 22. We'll be there in just a moment. So pray with me, please. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and we ask that our eyes would be open to your word, that we might understand the beauty of the sacrifice for us, the gift that we've been given in Christ. Lord, how much we owe to our groom who sanctifies us and makes us holy and prepares us for the wedding. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In 1758, Jonathan Edwards and his family received the smallpox inoculation as a precautionary measure against the disease that was prevalent in the area of New Jersey to which he had just been uh, called and was going. He was going to be the president of the university, which would later become Princeton. His children recovered without difficulty, but Edwards contracted a full-blown case of smallpox. Sores covered his body and even the inside of his mouth to the point that he was unable to, to take liquids in. And it was at this point that he called Lucy to his bedside, his daughter, Lucy, to dictate a note to his wife. <clears throat> he said, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her <clears throat> pardon me, that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. Now, Edwards did not believe that he and Sarah would be married in heaven, but that the uncommon union that they shared was a taste of heaven. The uncommon union, that is the essence of marriage. The essence of marriage is surprisingly, again, theological. In the last week, we looked at the idea that marriage is theology, and we looked in the Old Testament and the great covenant love that the Lord has for his people there. We looked at Ezekiel 16 and, and then a further illustration of it in the book of Hosea and how the prophet actually lived out the relationship of our Heavenly Father and his unfaithful people. And now we turn our attention to the New Testament, and again, marriage is theology in the New Testament. More specifically, marriage is the theology of the atonement in the New Testament, specifically what we call limited or definite atonement. So first, limited or definite atonement intensifies the personal aspect of God's love for the believer, both individually and we as a church, a group that is gathered for his purposes. Martin Luther said that the sweetness of the gospel is found in the personal pronouns, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That individual expression is also accompanied in the corporate aspect from Ephesians that we read earlier. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that is his bride. The love of Christ for the church is particular, it is special, 
it is exclusive. Love that is differentiated from his universal love for mankind, which is general, which is inclusive, and which is universal. So there is a different love that Christ has for his church. They are his people. They are chosen out from the world rather than the love that he has for everyone else. It is a discriminating love, and this love is no more offensive uh, than a husband's love for his wife. He vows to have love for only one, remember in the service, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. That is the exclusive love a husband has for his wife. It is an exclusive type of love that Christ has for his wife. Christ's love for us was not an afterthought, but a forethought. We are the reason he came from heaven. We are the reason he took on the form of a man. We are the reason he went to a cross and gave his life willingly. We are the reason that the tomb is empty and that he is risen again. Secondly, limited or definite atonement enhances the Christian's view of marriage. The Bible begins with a marriage between Adam and his wife. The Bible ends with a marriage between Christ and his bride. It is a celebration of these two marriages, this concept of the uncommon union. So human marriage has at its core a one flesh union that is laid out for us in scripture. And thus it is a picture of the union of Christ and his church. And Paul uses this illustration and this imagery for us uh, to drive home the fact that we are the body of Christ. We belong to him. Christ, the bridegroom, is also the head. He gives himself up for the body to which he is united to. Paul's marriage commands to husbands and wives are based on this union between the head and the body. Ephesians chapter 8, or chapter 5, which we read earlier. So Paul is saying to us that a husband who does not love his wife is like a man who harms his own body. And a wife who does not respect her husband is like a body which ignores commands from its head. Both behaviors result in damage. Both behaviors result in dysfunction. Both behaviors when they are not carried out the way that the Lord says, result in tragedy. Christians must remember that our marriages preach the love story of Christ's union with his bride. I think if you keep that in mind, you'll look at your marriage a little bit differently. They preach the love story of Christ's union with his bride. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a uh, medical doctor in England and who then who went to seminary and became the, uh, uh, the, the chaplain for the queen at one time and then left that and went to Wales and, and, and was a preacher and, and he writes extensively. He writes about this understanding of the atonement in marriage and he says, what has Christ done for his church and when did he do it? He gave all he was for us when we were still in our sin, when we were ungodly and when we were his enemies. While we were vile and there was nothing beautiful within us, we were not Cinderella who only needed a fairy godmother and a makeover. I put that part in. Okay. Um, but look at the church in her vileness, in her rages, and in her sin, enmity between us and God. The prince of glory loved her while she was like that and in spite of that. Loved her even to the extent of giving himself up for her and dying for her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How many of us realize that we are always to think of marriage in terms of the doctrine of the atonement. 
Where do we find the books in the bookstore or online that mention the atonement with marriage? The most foolish of all Christians are those who dislike doctrine, decry the importance of theology and teaching, but you cannot separate the importance of doctrine from life and practice. If you don't love doctrine, then you can't live it out in your practice. If you relegate doctrine to study, you have missed it. It must infect all areas of our life. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. The church occupies a special and exclusive position which only the bride of Christ can have. Only the church can hold that position. This is what Christ has done. He has chosen a bride from among all others in the world. He has chosen us in the same way that a man goes and chooses a woman. And they agree and move together. Except in the issue of Christ, he chose us while we were sin, while we were vile. We could not agree to it. He saved us from our sin. The Lord of glory, the eternal Son of God, has set us apart, has isolated us as a people only for himself. So because of our status as the bride of Christ, the church is no longer free to do certain things. The church is no longer free to go and act as it did previously, but but only lives for her husband as he lives for her. The husband does not look at other women because the bride is the one that his heart longs for. The bride is the one that his heart has chosen and he chooses among all other women. This is how Christ looks at the church. He does not look at any others. He loves us and has given himself for us. The church no longer belongs to herself, does not belong to the world, is not free to do as she pleases. The church belongs to the groom, to Christ and he alone. So why does Christ do all of this? Why does he give himself up for us? Why does he, he wash us in his blood? Ephesians 5.27 That he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and without blemish. Everything that Christ has done is to that end. That he might present us to himself. But we know that at a wedding, the bride is presented by someone else to the groom because there's that question who gives this woman to be married to this man now she has been helped in her preparation all of her life she has been uh, raised and and educated and and cared for and then usually on the day of the wedding if it's a wedding here at, at the church maybe over at the cooper house the, the people get there early and they're, they're, the hair is done and the makeup is done and the nails are done and, and all of these things. And then the bride is walked down the aisle and presented to the groom by someone else. But Christ does all the preparation for the bride. He does everything to get her ready so that he might present the bride to himself. Why does this happen this way? Because nobody else can do it. Nobody else can do what is necessary to take this vile woman, that's us, and cleanse her and prepare her to be ready for the bride, and that is Christ. Now we're going to examine three instances in Scripture in the New Testament where marriage is highlighted for its theological significance. Now remember, in, in Sunday morning, we're doing the theological emphasis. Uh, the first Sunday was laying the foundation for these things in Genesis. Last Sunday, we looked at 
the theology of marriage in the Old Testament. Today it is the theology of marriage in the New Testament. The nuts and bolts of how to live these things out are illustrated better for us on Sunday nights. So here we go to Matthew chapter 22. The greatest social event in ancient biblical times was a wedding. In fact, maybe even today, that, that, that's still the case. Everybody gets excited, everybody comes and wants to go to a wedding. And, and it's this wedding imagery that Scripture uses to describe the celebration that will occur when Christ is fully joined to his beloved people, his bride. Now, ancient times, let me give you a little bit of history of what a wedding looked like in, in ancient times. There were three components that went into the wedding process in ancient biblical times. So first was the betrothal. The the betrothal. This means the engagement or to be espoused to someone. Remember, Joseph and Mary were engaged or espoused. They were not officially married at that time, but they were engaged or espoused to one another. And this was a legally binding contract, usually signed by both parents, sometimes even made before the children were born. So just think about that. Um, you, didn't, you didn't look at the, at the child and go, I think uh, he's going to grow up to be a, a good-looking young man, so I'll, I'll let my daughter be married to, to him. This was done often before the children were even born. Parents would, or, you know, men and women would come together and they would agree that if I have a son, they'll marry your daughter. If you have a son, they can marry my daughter. That was the agreement. That was laid out before Sometimes even children were born. So it was more important to choose the family than to choose the individual, but this was a legally binding agreement that was made. So first is the betrothal. The second component in marriage is what we'll call the presentation. The presentation was a time of the festivities. This is the wedding feast that would go on. And it was just before the actual wedding service. There are a lot of literature uh, from that time that indicates that these, fe- these festivities could go on for a week at a time, a week long. Now imagine the expense of a wedding today, but just imagine all those guests coming into town and you had to house them, you had to feed them, and you had to entertain them for a week. That's a pretty serious investment there, pretty serious uh, party that is going to go on. It would cost quite a bit there. Now imagine if you were a king and, and you were throwing a wedding for your son. Imagine the gift, the gifts that would come in. Well, I, I don't know if they did gifts, but imagine the wedding list. Who would not want to come to the wedding of a son? Now it's an important fact from weddings at the biblical time, the bridegroom was the center of attention. It was not the groom. Now in, in, in wedding prep today um, how do I want to say this nicely Hmm. I ask the questions to the bride what do you want what do you want it to be if the groom has an opinion that's great but usually the groom goes good that's good I like that that's fine yeah well she likes it I'm good and the bride has all these thoughts you're going to find and I'm going to repeat this you're going to find in these two illustrations the bride is not even mentioned here The bride is not important in in Matthew 22 and in Matthew 25, what we're going to look at next. It is the bridegroom that is everything here. It is the bridegroom that is important. Now, the groom would present the bride to all the uh, gathered guests. 
that would feast together for the week. And, and they're not physically husband and wife yet. Remember that. They're, not, they're only engaged. They're betrothed. Uh, but it's a legally binding contract, so they're not married yet. They've not consummated the, the marriage yet. They, they live in their own homes apart from one another. And at the presentation port, the part, the bridegroom would go to the house, get the bride, and then present the bride to the guests. And that leads us to the third component of the marriage, and that is the ceremony, the actual exchange of the vows. So at the end of the period of fasting, I'm sorry, of feasting, and at the end of the presentation, all the people would meet the bride. They would see her in her glory and in her splendor. And at the end of the time, there would be a final meal. And then there would be the, what we would call the ceremony, the vows. And then uh, the best man would take the, 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 the hand of the bride and put it in the hand of the groom. And then he would turn to everybody else and go, okay, thank you. And everybody was expected to leave because they've been waiting a while and it's time that they be married. Okay. Now we turn to Matthew 22. And Jesus answered and spoke to them in a parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Okay, this is a king. How many times you get invited to the wedding feast of a king? Not often. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited. That was like the pre-invite. And now the time has come. But they were unwilling to come. And again, he sent out other slaves, telling those who had been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. The feast is ready. My oxen, my fatted livestock are all butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. And they went their way. Can you imagine that? Here is an invitation from the king. Come to the wedding feast of my son. Eh, what's their excuse? One to his own farm, another to his business. The rest seized the slaves, mistreated them, killed them. But the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed them, set their city on fire. You're not going to come to the, my, respond to the invitation. You're not going to come to the wedding feast of my son. You're going to pay the price. If you don't respond to the son, you're going to pay the price. Then he said to the slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And they went out to the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there was a man not dressed in wedding clothes. Now, in wedding clothes. That means not only did the king have to put up all these people, but he had to buy them clothes. Because only when you were dressed in certain clothes could you come into the wedding. I hope you're getting the theological significance of this. Okay, We are clothed in the righteousness of whom? Christ. You, you're not going to be in heaven unless you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, who is the groom. And he said to them, friend, how did you come in here without the wedding clothes? Speechless. And the king said to the servant, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's hell, if you have any questions. That's hell. For many are called, but few are chosen. Where's the bride in this? She, she's not mentioned here. She's not mentioned here. 
Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 25. And, and you'll notice that each parable begins with what? The kingdom of heaven is like. So it tells us what the image here is and, and, and the explanation of these parables. It's about the kingdom of heaven. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took the oil in the flask of their lamps. Okay. Now, this is going to be an illustration of being prepared for the arrival of the groom, ready for the bridegroom when he arrives. And you, you say, well... You know, in our world today, most weddings are what? Well, they're Saturday at 5 o'clock. Now, here's a little-known fact. What happens at 5 o'clock? The bride walks in at 5 o'clock, according to Miss Manners. Okay? Not, we don't start with the seating of the mothers or the grandmothers. At 5 o'clock, the bride is supposed to walk in. Now, I ask every couple if they know that, and they go, I didn't know that. Well, of course you didn't know that. Nobody reads Miss Manners anymore. But so, so but but we're used to saying, well, everybody will be there at five o'clock by five o'clock because the wedding is going to start at five, right? Mm. But here you have some who don't know. So while the bridegroom was delayed, the bride's at her house. She's with her maidens. She's waiting for the groom to come, waiting for the father to send the groom to collect the bride. And, 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 but we don't have a definite time here in the New Testament. We, no, no time is getting ready. That's why you pre-invite the guests, and then you send out word that the wedding is, is about, the feast is ready to happen, everything is ready, you know, you've done all the preparation. So the word goes out. The groom shows up to get the bride, and the word goes out, now is the time to come. Look at verse 6. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose, and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, saying, No, there will not be enough for us. And you too, go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourself. So this is about being prepared for the arrival of the bridegroom. Verse 10, And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And the door was shut. Later the others came, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered, I don't know you. We see this in other instances in, in Matthew. When those who, didn't we cast out demons, didn't we preach in your name, didn't we do all this? And the Lord says what? Away from me, I never knew you. I, I don't know you. They weren't prepared. The, they knew the bridegroom was coming. And what did they do? Did they make any preparation? Did they seek after him? Did they, they get ready? No, they just kind of hung out. And when the shout went, here comes the bridegroom, they were like, oh, we're not ready. But the five prudent were ready, and they went off with the bridegroom. The whole idea is to be prepared for the bridegroom. When he comes to get his bride, the bride must be ready. True believers are ready. The oil is simply the preparedness, a symbol for the preparedness. Matthew 22 doesn't mention the bride. Matthew 25 doesn't mention the bride, just the foolish and the prudent. 
because the bride isn't important in these illustrations. Who's important in these illustrations? It is the bridegroom. Who is the bridegroom? It is Jesus Christ. That's the one who comes for us. But when we get to Revelation, Revelation 19, turn with me please. Now we find that the mention of the bride is important. The bride is identified here. The bride is made clear who she is. The terminology that is used in Revelation 19 is pretty clear. Remember, we start with a wedding, Adam and Eve. We end with the wedding, Christ and his bride. So, you got any questions? Marriage is theology. It starts the Bible, it ends the Bible. Okay? And you're thinking, I just like the girl. I want to get married. No, no. No, guys, so I understand. That's why... If you'll know, if you know the passage from Ephesians, sorry guys, I didn't have it, I left it somewhere. If you, if you know the passage from Ephesians, we did not read what portion of Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit yourself to the husbands. That's not important today. What's important today? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. Why? Because... Really, until the end, he is the one who's preparing the bride to present the bride to himself. Who is really important? It is the bridegroom. It is Christ who is important. Men, we must live like Christ for our wives. Wives, you will love the husband who lives like Christ, would you not? I mean, who does not want a man who loves them in the same way that Christ loves the church? Who will not follow a man who is loving them in the same way that Christ loved the church, giving himself up, emptying himself of all that he was for her? That's our job, men. Did we do it today? Probably not. Did we do it perfectly anytime? Probably not. Are we a process? Are we a work in progress? Yeah. Some of us need more progress than others, but that's just the way we are. We come to here, Revelation chapter 19. Now, we, we're gonna, I'm going to read the first six, but we really kick into what we're after here in verse 7. So after these things, I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants. You who fear him, the small and the great, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. This is the marriage feast of the Lamb. It was given to her to clothe herself in what? The righteous 
acts of the saints. This is the adornment of the bride. John says she is given these fine linen, the bright and the pure things to wear. Now, she didn't provide those for herself. We don't provide those things for herself. They are given to us. She wears the grace that is bestowed upon her. That is us, the bride. We wear these works of righteousness done out of the grace that is given to us. The bride's own clothing, according to Isaiah, in her natural state is made up of what? Filthy rags. Filthy rags. But Paul says in Ephesians that Christ cleanses his bride, presents her to himself without stain, without blemish, spotless. The fine linen that John sees in verse 8, the righteous deeds of the saints, that that, kind of opens up, what's our part in this? What is the part of the bride in all of this? What would be an obligation of the bride? Faithfulness to the bridegroom absolute faithfulness to the bridegroom another obligation would be waiting expectantly for the bridegroom to return just like the virgins another obligation would be to do the good works that god has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them okay why has he done this why has he given us the gift of faith why is it by grace we are saved to do the works that were prepared ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 what beforehand Before the foundations of the earth, he had planned these things out. There are things for each of us to do. These are the works, the righteous acts of the saints. The church was betrothed to Christ in a contract which is eternal. Before any of us were born, thus we became part of the bride of Christ. Before the world started, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and following. You were chosen in Christ when? Before the foundations of the earth. Now, I say, but I came to Christ when I was 15 in Ocean City, New Jersey on a Tuesday night. When was I chosen in Christ? Before the foundations of the earth were laid. Remember John 15 or John 14, where Jesus says what? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I'm going to come back and get you and take you where I am that you may be there also. It is simply a picture of the bridegroom coming across town to collect his bride, to gather her up and take her back to the place where the father and the son has prepared. Now understand, in that time, uh, the father would have a house and the son would say they'd make all the arrangements and there would be you know, the betrothal and everything and the father and the son would begin to build on a, another house onto the father's house. And when that was done, then the wedding could happen. He'd pick up the bride, take her back, and that's where they would be. And, and often if they had a lot of sons, they would actually make a, a square and there would be a courtyard. And all the things that would go on would be there in the house that the father has prepared with the son for the bride. It's a beautiful picture of our text here where Christ says, I'm going to come back. I'm going to get you. I'm going to take you to where I am. Verse 7, one more time. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The privilege, the privilege that we have of being the bride of Christ. She will be clothed with the garments of righteousness, and within she will be made perfect by the work of Christ himself. Think of the Jude doxology just a couple pages before. 
He goes to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceedingly great joy. The people of God will rejoice because it is God's intention not to consume them in the fires of judgment, but that they be held to his heart as the bride, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Christ comes to bring us, his people, into an intimacy and a richness that the rest of the world just does not understand. And really, we get a taste of it. If you've been here at a wedding, now, usually I stand up here, and here's the groom, here's the best man. And the ladies have all come down, and they're standing over here, and we close the door. When the maid of honor comes down, we close the door, and the bride gets ready. And, and I, Robert and I have all this worked out. He doesn't play anything until the door's open because the bride's getting ready. The dress has to be ready. Who knows? Dad may have stepped on the dress and torn it or something. But she's back there, and, and the moment we're just waiting, you know, in anticipation. And here's the groom, and, and this is when the groom really gets... You know, a little bit like that. Because when those doors open and he sees her, if they've done it in the traditional way, he's not seen her all day, not seen the dress, he sees her clothed in that way. You can just tell the guys that melt. You know, you can just see it. You can hear him go, you know, because the tears are coming. That is some taste. Christ waits for his bride. He presents her he cleanses her he makes her spotless and presents her to himself jesus died to bring this marriage to a full realization he's been preparing his bride for the wedding day cleansing us from every spot cleansing us from every sin wiping away the blemish until we will be at last perfectly holy and when that work is complete the marriage supper will begin sin will be no more and we will sing with the saints hallelujah let's pray lord a love like this we just we just cannot comprehend it in this world it is foreign to us but yet your word is clear Christ has given all that he had for us. He left the right hand of the Father and took on the form of a man that he might wash his bride of her sin. And there will be a day when he will come and gather his bride for the final wedding feast. Sin will be no more. Every tear will be wiped away. And we will be spotless, not because of our work or our efforts, but because of his and he will love us in the same way that Christ, that the Father loved his church, his church in the Old Testament, his people. Christ will love us, his bride. Heavenly Father, fix this in our hearts today, that we might live this way. We are the bride of Christ. Our marriages declare the gospel story. Let us never forget this. Let us live those things with joy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.